Right. Well, thank you, Jeff and Hannah, again, for leading the worship this morning. Uh, Happy Father's Day to everyone who's here. Uh, I hope, like Shane has said, that you are thinking of your dads at the very least. For some of you, that it might be a sad moment, and listen, our hearts are for you uh, this this morning. But for for others, it might be a happy moment. And, And we're glad that you are here, and we're glad that you get to celebrate this. We're so thankful, I'm so thankful for the dad in my life. And really, honestly, if I can be frank, for the many, many godly men that God placed in my life who, who functioned in different ways as dads to me. Um, I, I've shared a little bit of my story with you that, that I kind of come from a, a broken home where uh, my dad, he lived in California. He was a Marine, though, so he was constantly stationed overseas. And my mom and him got divorced fairly early on. And I had a, a stepdad for a time, and then my mom got divorced again, and now my mom's with her, her, sec, her third husband, and he's a great godly man for sure. But each one of those men God did use in my life, but more than just them. And in the midst of my anger, in the midst of the hurt that I kind of uh, suffered through, I guess, in, in elementary school and middle school and high school, God brought awesome men into my life. Men who were my youth pastors or really even sometimes just volunteers, these great guys that for whatever reason God brought around. And I I clearly see the fingerprints of God on the things that that I walked through and that these godly men walked through with me. And so so I like to remember even on Father's Day, not just our biological dads or or our, our stepdads. I like to also remember those people that God used in our lives. To, to help us get to the, the point that we are. So, happy Father's Day, but remember those people. Remember those people. God used them in a mighty way. This, this morning, we're continuing our, our First Peter sermon series. And as you know, we have not been in First Peter for the last couple of weeks of our First Peter sermon series because we've been taking a moment to kind of figure out and get a picture of who Peter was. Right? If he's the one who's writing this letter of 1 Peter, I wanted us just to kind of, kind of see it, take a look into his life and, and see what are the things that God dealt with in him that maybe shaped who he was. All right? And that's why we, we even showed this, this video just a moment ago just to kind of recap who Peter was. Because when we come to this, this letter, that's going to be literally the first word is Peter. Right? I mean, he's, he's telling you who he is and, and why he's writing in the first two verses, which is where we'll be. This morning, for the first time in First Peter. So if you have a Bible, or if you've got a phone, you've got the app, whatever that looks like for you, maybe you're like me and you like the good, like, you know, old paper and, and leather bound, whatever, you know. So go ahead and turn to First Peter, because we're going to be looking at chapter 1 in verse 1 and 2. So in our first sermon series on, in actually the, the letter of First Peter, we will only be looking at the first two verses. Is that fair? Can we do that? I think, I think that's, you know, taking little baby steps. Remember that I had said originally this was supposed to be like a short sermon series, you know, just something to kind of like uh, get us through um, for, for a little while to see what God might be saying about us as a church because our name is Revolution Church. And with a name like Revolution, you know, it kind of has to be good. People are going to be expecting certain things when they walk through the door. You know, but as I started reading first Peter and thinking through revolutionary concepts, that was the pun. But at the same time, that's that's what God was was leading me to. What are the revolutionary concepts in this letter? And as I was reading, I like kept making notes. You know, here's another revolutionary concept. Here's another concept. 
And so we'll probably be in First Peter, you know, through August. It's whatever. It's just what's going to happen. You know, uh, maybe God will deviate us a little bit. We'll see what happens. But for the most part, hunker down, get to know this letter, read it on your own, read it at, at home, whatever you want to do, just, just kind of try to bask in these words. If, if you still kind of want to uh, learn more about who Peter was and how maybe some of the things he lived through shaped who he was and, and how he wrote and the things that stood out to him, then I would encourage you to check out the Gospel of Mark. All right? Because the Gospel of Mark is long, long held uh, to, to be the, the Gospel that was written based on the things Peter experienced. All right? John Mark is an actual disciple in the Bible. However, uh, conservative scholars believe that he was writing based on the things that Peter witnessed. John Mark was not part of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John were. And so he was getting some of that information from Peter. So, hey, check it out. I'm not saying it's going to paint a positive image of Peter necessarily, because we saw last week that Peter wasn't always, you know, the best guy. He would speak before thinking, act before thinking, and this would would allow God to use him in mighty ways, like when he gives that sermon on the day of Pentecost. But also there would be moments where it would cause him shame and guilt, as he would say or do things that were not what he should say or do. And so the first revolutionary concept we're going to deal with this morning in the first two verses is this idea of theology. Revolutionary theology. Okay? And theology is just, it's a, it's a simple word that means the study of God. All right? So when we talk about theology, we talk about what we believe about God. Okay, and, and, and you might be asking, well, why in the world are we doing a sermon on theology? Like, what's the point and how could it possibly be revolutionary? Meaning, different from the norm, not typical. That's, that's the concept of revolutionary, okay? And the answer is simply this. In our day and age, what we see all across America is cultural subjective theology. To say it like this, it would mean... Uh, I make God into who I want him to be. The things I believe are things that feel good to me, and I don't believe the things that don't feel good to me. That's what I mean when I say cultural subjective theology. And so that's, that's the, the cultural norm. You see it all across America. You see it all across the world. As people might, if they're Christians, they might pick and choose things from the Bible that they're going to believe. But far more often, it, it, you see it in, in every other religion. As people take different concepts that they like and want to believe about God, but then they kind of, you know, exclude the things that they may not like. And so this morning, what we want to do as we study revolutionary theology, as we look and see what is it that Peter believes about God, what is he trying to teach us about God in the first two verses, I want you to kind of open your mind to that. And here's the statement, here's the takeaway. True theology is knowing and loving God. True theology is knowing and loving God. It's not creating a a, a figment of our imagination, a fictional God for us to worship. It's taking God for who He is and loving Him because of who He is. That's true theology. Okay? And so, so as, we, as we get ready here, I, I mean, everything kind of changed for me in the way that I saw God, in the way that I studied the Bible. When uh, several, several years ago, I was, it was probably, I'm going to say, you know, seven years ago, 
I, I came across in the Bible, in the book of John, in verse 17, in verse 3, chapter 17, verse 3, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he gets arrested, right before he goes to the cross and is killed unjustly, okay? He, he's praying to God and he says these words. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He defines eternal life by saying it's, it's knowing God, and that knowing is relational. It's a relationship with God. And so that, what that means for us this morning and what that meant for me like seven years ago when I read that and I let that sink in is that eternal life does not, it's not something that happens once your time here ends and, and you move on, you know, like you pass, you die, and you, and, you, and you go to heaven with Jesus, and then eternal life starts. No, 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 no. Jesus is very clear. Eternal life starts now for the believer. If you have placed faith in Jesus, repented of your sin, and you believe that God raised him from the dead, listen, eternal life begins now because it's a relationship with God. It's knowing and loving God. It's a game changer. This past week in, in my guy's uh, Bible study group, we've been, we've been walking through the book Crazy Love, written by Francis Chan. And uh, it got to this, this part in the book where he was talking about how, how our view of our earthly dad has an inevitable effect on our view of our heavenly dad. That's God. And so perhaps your relationship with, with, with your dad in your past, I don't know what that looks like, I don't know how close y'all are, whatever, but it has an effect on how you view God. For me, my dad was across the country or out of the country. And so I, growing up, had an, honestly a distant view of God. That he was distant from me or that I was distant from him. And because I was always trying to have that dad figure in my life where I could impress or please, I found myself all throughout my, my, my early uh, Christian walk struggling and desiring to impress God and to do things that God would approve of, that he would love me for. And this, this led me to become really legalistic, you know, like trying to follow all these, these laws and rules in the Bible, believing that that would make me desirable to God. And here's the problem with that. So I don't know your relationship with your dad and how that might have affected for you. It might have been positive. Maybe your dad was extremely present. He was close. He was loving. He went to every ball game, you know. Maybe that's true, and so maybe you have a really positive outlook of God, that he is right there, you know? But I encourage you on Father's Day right now, today, to kind of think about that. How has my relationship with my earthly dad impacted my, my view and relationship of my heavenly dad, okay? Just something to think about, all right? Because here's the problem, here's the problem. If we're not careful, our daddy issues will misinform us about God. And we'll start to believe things about God that are not true. They're not grounded in Scripture. They're wrong. And secondly, because we're surrounded by a culture that wants to pick and choose what they believe about a God, we also, if we're not careful, might you know, create a fictional God, a work of art in our mind about who God might be. He's this, he's not that. We might, and at that point, when we come to the Bible and we might read something that might be different from what we believe, we might say, well, I know better. And so I'm going to continue to believe this, even though the Word of God might say that. 
Okay, so these are two things that we want to stay away from as we think about true theology and how it is knowing and loving God. So let's go ahead and see what Peter has to say about who God is. But also, listen, we're going to see this in the first two verses. We're going to see also what Peter says that God, how God sees us, what God says about us. Okay, so go ahead and look in in verse one. That's where we're going to be. Chapter one, verse one. Here we go. First Peter, first time it's happening. (laughs) Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. First two verses, super jam-packed with theology. So y'all need to say a little quiet prayer for me in this moment. In fact, we might need to pray right now, because in these first two verses are some pretty weighty, potentially controversial things. And so we want to make sure that we're allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us as we read this, and not just allowing our thoughts and our minds to guide us. Okay, let's pray real fast. In the name of the true Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you take over in this moment. God, we ask that you fill this place with your spirit for all the believers here this morning. I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, God, and direct them to what your truth is saying, what you're attempting to tell us about yourself, but also what you're attempting to tell us about us and who we are. So, God, give me the words to speak this morning. Guard my lips. Do not let me say something that's not from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Peter is the one writing this letter. He identifies himself immediately. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so you might have a question, perhaps, as to why should we trust what Peter has to say about who God is. Okay? Maybe that's a question. And maybe that's not a question you have. Why should we trust what Peter has to say? But I guarantee you that's going to be a question that people have as you encounter people throughout your life, especially here in America. Why should I trust anything the Bible says? Or why should I trust what that Peter, the dude who wrote that letter, says? And so here's three quick reasons. I'm going to try to get through them real fast. Number one, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he was an eyewitness. We, we, the last two Sundays we spent looking at, at key moments in Peter's life where he walked with Jesus for over three years. He was privy to crazy, tight group conversations. When even some of like the, the seven of the other disciples weren't even present, Peter was there. When Jesus goes up on this mountaintop and, and reveals his glory and meets Moses and Elijah on the mountain, Peter is there. He sees that. He gets to hear their conversation. Okay? So we can trust what Peter has to say about God because he was there. He was an eyewitness. He's not just making things up willy-nilly. He's telling us things that Jesus himself taught him. Second, he's an apostle. All you have to do is read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and you'll find out the office of the apostle was meant to lay the foundation of the word of God, much like the prophets in the Old Testament. An apostle giving us the word of God. And you might ask, how? And that's the the third reason why we can trust Peter. And it's a fancy seminary term called verbal plenary inspiration. And it means simply this. Every word in this letter of 1 Peter 
And every word in the rest of the Bible is inspired by God. So, to save time, I'm going to move forward, but I'm going to give you two scriptures for you to write down if you're a note taker or to go ahead and read and double check me right now. All right? The first one is this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. You can go there and you'll hear how Peter describes no prophecy was given by man or by man's own interpretation, but these prophets, these people wrote down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when you're carried by something, you can't go where you don't want to go, can you? You go where they take you, right? The second one would be 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. You can go check that out. All Scripture is breathed out by God and useful. All right? So check those for me. Those two passages teach us verbal plenary inspiration. Every word is inspired by God. So we can trust what Peter has to say because the Holy Spirit is bringing him to write these things to us. Notice who he's writing to. You ready? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles of the dispersion all across what is now modern-day Turkey. And as we speak, as we meet here this morning, there are, there are Christians in Turkey who are not able to congregate for fear of their lives. There are pastors imprisoned, there are Christians killed. And, and, and that's modern-day Turkey. That kind of persecution is, is crazy hard. But what the, what the people here are facing, when he calls them elect exiles in all of these regions, listen, they are exiles because they are social outcasts. They believe what is not typical of the day. They don't worship Roman gods. They don't worship, you know, the, the, the spirits and the wind and crazy things. They're not praying for the rain, to the rain. They're praying to the God who created the rain, right? And that causes them to be social outcasts in the marketplace. As they're not eating certain meats that were offered to idols, that causes them to be social outcasts at work. Maybe even from their own families as parents get angry that their children might be believing in the Christian God rather than in these Roman gods or, or calling Caesar their God. All right? So they're social outcasts, and not just that, but they're also outcasts because they know the truth. That this world is not their home. And so we are the exiles today that Peter is speaking to. In his day it was these in Pontius, Galatia, in these places. Today it is us who are social outcasts here in America because it's no longer typical, nor cool, nor even welcome to believe in Jesus, or more specifically, what the Bible says about Jesus or about God. Okay? And maybe, maybe you, like these believers, also know the truth because you've always had this nagging sensation that this is not where you're meant to be. We are exiles here. This is not our home. Our home is with God. But the first word, and this is where we're going to get into this theology, the first word that Peter uses to describe these exiles, these Christians that he's writing to, is the word elect. And for for many of you, this word elect or election might bring to mind some controversy. It might bring to mind some hurt. Where maybe you knew some people who, who were so diehard about this one doctrine that they berated you and abused the Bible to tell you things about God that, that, that were hurtful to you. Okay, So maybe you've been hurt. And so when you hear that word, you cringe a little bit. Maybe you're afraid because you're like, what in the world? Where is this sermon going? What's going to be said here? Am I going to agree with this? 
But remember, we don't need to be afraid of what the Bible says. It was given to us for a purpose. God has something he wants to say to you this morning. For others, you might be encouraged by the word because when you hear the word elect, that means you know there is nothing about you that deserves the love of God. Because remember, revolutionary grace is the limitless love of God for undeserving people. We talked about that last week. The limitless love of God for undeserving people. And when you hear the word elect, maybe you feel that love. God looked at you and decided, I will love that person. Okay? So we don't want to be afraid of this. Instead, we want to see how Peter defines this word. We don't want to bring our conceptions of this word into the text. We want to see what Peter has to say about it. So let's look at verse 2. Here we go. Are you all ready? Because we're going to learn some things about God. And the first one is this. Our God knows us. I want you to turn to somebody that you're sitting next to and say to them, Our God knows you. Yeah, it's a little awkward at first. We're talking when I'm supposed to be talking, right? It's crazy. We're going to try it again. We're going to try it again. I want you to look to, the, to another person and tell them, our God knows you. Very good. That's right. Call it, call it across the room. That's right, Shane. Hit them all. Listen, listen. Guys, this is an incredible reality. This is truth. These aren't the, the Roman gods who, who, who didn't care about the people of their, of their day. Listen, this is not the God of Islam who, who could never have a personal relationship with you, okay? This is the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, and he knows you. Our God knows us. Check it out. Check it out. These, he's writing to the elect exiles in verse 1. According to, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. And it's that word foreknowledge where I come to this concept of our God knows you. He elected them according to his foreknowledge. He knew before the world was created, before he ever moved, he knew every single person that would ever live. He knew them all. Okay? And when, when we come to this word, again, it's going to have two views. And I'm not going to try and get in here and debate views this morning. That's not my goal. But I do want to make you aware of two views about this foreknowledge. Number one, God's foreknowledge means that he chose us because he knew we would choose him. All right? View number one. View number two, our God chose us knowing that there was nothing in us that would desire him. Okay? Those are two views of foreknowledge. And I don't want to get caught up in that this morning. That's not my job. Not here this morning. I believe that the message God wants us to hear this morning is the fact that God knows the future and he knows you. That word foreknowledge in the Greek, it's not intellectual knowledge. All right? It's not turning on the TV and looking at what the random trivia game is, like Family Feud, and trying to figure out all the different facts. Like you're able to ace that game whenever it comes on because you know a bunch of trivia facts. Intellectual knowledge. All right? It's a relational and experiential knowledge. So when when it says the foreknowledge of God, it means God knew you personally. He knew your future personally. He already numbered all the days. He knew how many days you would walk this earth. He knew every trial that you would ever face, every mean word that would be said to you, every, every, every terrible moment you would walk through, but he also knew the joys that, that you would experience, your personality, who you would become to be, your favorite color. I mean, he chose your hair color. This guy, okay? He knows us. That's what I want us to walk away with here. 
It's not intellectual knowledge. It's experiential or relational knowledge. Listen, I know Dwayne The Rock Johnson, okay? As I, was, as I was thinking through this, something came to my mind, and you can double-check me. A little shout-out to my Instagram, okay? You can go to my Instagram, AJ underscore Keith. You can find me. It's, it's there, all right? And you will just scroll back a little ways, and you're going to see me wearing a Dwayne The Rock Johnson Under Armour t-shirt, all right? This was several years back when he first made these Under Armour shirts, and so I ordered one because I like this dude, you know? I mean, I may not be, you know, over six and a half feet or, you know, over 200-something pounds yet, but I will say this. I will say this. Man, I know Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So I got this T-shirt. I put this thing on, and I take a selfie, because that's what you do, right? Actually, I think I had Melinda take a, a picture of me. It wasn't even a selfie. I was like, I wanted, and I'm striking my, my, my Dwayne The Rock Johnson pose, except I look like spaghetti next to, like, you know, whatever he is, you know, the full plate of lasagna, right? But listen, listen. So I take it, and it says, blood, sweat, and respect. The first two you give, the last one you earn, right? That's, that's a quote that he gives all the time. So I get on Instagram. I tag this man. I quote this man. I hashtag this man. And I go to sleep. And the next morning, I awaken to tons of notifications on Instagram. And I'm like scrolling through. What in the world's going on? I see all these comments. And I'm seeing what my friends are writing. I'm like, whoa, that's totally awesome. And I'm like, I know. This shirt's so cool. You know? <laughs> But I get to this point where I see one of my friends says, AJ, I mean, can you believe it? I'm like, what's he talking about? So I scroll back to the early comments, man. Dwayne Johnson commented on my post, and he double-tapped my picture. Like, in that moment, I was the Instagram stalker who went to the likes, and I scrolled through to see, did this man touch my face? All right? I believe somebody would try to, like, bring me down a couple notches and said, maybe he just touched the little like heart. And I was like, no, he double-tapped my face. Okay? And so I was so excited. Melinda was like, you know, in the, res- in, the, in the bathroom area. She might have been in the shower. Who knows what's going on there. But listen, all I know is I started like jumping up and down like a giddy schoolgirl, and I'm like running into there like, ah! You know? She has no clue what's happening. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson touched my face! You know? But here's, here's, here's what I'm getting at. Okay? I know that Dwayne Johnson is over six and a half feet. He's over 200 pounds. I've seen almost all of his movies. Perhaps I shouldn't say that because some of them are pretty bad. Maybe we should not support those movies, okay? Fire me later. But listen, um, either way, I don't have his cell phone number. I don't have access to his address. I can't just walk up to him on the side of the street and expect him to remember my awesome Instagram post. I don't know him relationally. You know what I'm saying? Like, he and I, we don't have a relationship. And that's the difference. That's what I'm getting at here. When, when, it, when the Bible in 1 Peter talks about the foreknowledge of God, listen, our God knows you, and he knows you personally. He knows every like, every dislike. He knows everything you've walked through and what you're going to go through. And he knows you. And that should be a very comforting thing to us. This, this, this verse is connected to verse 1. He's got a bunch of... A bunch of city names in between there, so we're going to cut those out for a moment. To the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Okay? And what that simply means is this. He knew who would belong to him. He knew that. He knows everything. He knows the future. But it also means this. He set his affection on you in advance. Before you were born. He set his affection on you. That's the kind of foreknowledge we see here. And it's from God the Father. 
Our heavenly daddy knew everything about us, and he chose to love us. So what does that mean for you and me? The first thing is it means this. Some of you here in this room this morning have never been picked for anything in your life. You've been, you've been overlooked for promotions. You were not the, the athletic Jeff Gafford type. Okay? You weren't the basketball whiz. So on the schoolyard, when they're picking people for kickball, you were the last one picked. In fact, you weren't even picked, maybe. Maybe you're the one that's like, oh, who's going to get it? Okay, yeah, you just, well, it's your pick anyway, so I mean, he's yours, you know. Some of you have been passed up for all kinds of things, but listen to the truth of the, of the Word of God this morning. God picked you. And listen, when you choose people to be on your kickball team, you choose people because you believe that they can help you get to victory. You believe that they're worth something. You believe that they are capable of something. That's not how God picks. God, God chooses to love the unlovable. He chooses to, to uh, bring out of darkness the imperfect, those who hated him. That's what God loves to do. And so our takeaway is this. God loves you. And he knows our needs. If God is all-knowing, if he knows your future before you were ever even created or walked this earth, then he knows everything you need right now. And he loves you. And Jesus said when talking to the disciples, including Peter, uh, Peter, excuse me, all right, he said, listen, if you as sinners know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so would the God of the universe who loves you, how much more would he know how to give you what you need? We need to praise God this morning because of who God is and how he, how he decided to love us before we ever decided to love Him. So true theology is knowing and loving God. And the first thing we learn about God is that our God knows us. But the second thing we're going to see in verse 2 is that our God is at work in us. Let's look at verse 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. And sanctification is, is, the, is God's process for change in us. And it, and it starts the moment you are awakened out of death and into life when you place faith in Jesus. Sanctification starts then. But it is not done. It is, the result is growing Christ-like character. To put it another way, who I am today is not who I used to be. It's not who I should be, maybe. But it's not who I used to be, thank God. All right? Because God is at work in me. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is at work in you. Some of y'all are just saying that to, like, me, I guess, because I'm in front of you. I wanted you to turn to your neighbor. That's all right. We'll get there. We'll get there. God is at work in you this morning, this afternoon, this evening. All right? God wants to move. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls us the masterpiece of God. For you are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to, to walk in good deeds. Paul calls us God's masterpiece. But here's something. When we talk about masterpiece, we're talking about the greatest piece of art ever created by a particular artist. And that's us to God. 
But we're not finished yet. That's the, that's the takeaway, okay? We're not finished yet. He's not done with you. Somebody thank God. God is not done with you, all right? When, when I think about this masterpiece and this work in progress, listen, it causes me to think of the, the great artist Michelangelo. You guys seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? You know what I'm talking about? Or whatever. All right. It causes me to think of, it causes me to think of Michelangelo in, the, in his great statue, the statue of David. You know what I'm talking about? That great big marble uh, piece of art. It's huge. You know? People fly from all over the world to see this and to marvel at this. But listen, do you guys know the story? Do you guys know the story of the statue of David? It was this big chunk of marble that two other artists had totally rejected like 50 and 75 years earlier. Back in the 1400s, there were these two famous artists at different times that looked at this chunk of marble, were told to build something out of it, and quit. They're like, there's too many imperfections, it's just not going to work. Shane works with wood, and at, at a certain point, there's just, there's just no helping anything. You know, if you reach a knot, who knows what's going to happen to, you know, your, your, your tools. But Michelangelo, the greatest artist of his day in the 15, early 1500s, decided, I can do this challenge. And so he goes to this chunk of marble, and after three years, he creates one of the greatest statues known to man, the Statue of David. His masterpiece. But it was a work in progress. And my favorite part about the story is that it was a neglected, imperfect chunk of marble. And that's us before God finds us. Neglected, imperfect, ugly, angry, despicable, maybe. But God saw us and he didn't turn away. Instead, he chose to do something in us. We are God's masterpiece, a work in progress in the sanctification of the Spirit of God. The Spirit's sanctification is taking imperfect people and day by day shaping them into a masterpiece. And so what does that mean for you and me? That means that we need, as believers, to allow the Holy Spirit, to invite the Holy Spirit to convict us of some things that He needs to chisel away. You're a work in progress. Don't beat yourself up for things. Instead, ask God to help you overcome things. Ask God to change things. Fathers, dads, in here. There is not a dad in this room who can say they are who they should be or they were who they should have been. But you can thank God this morning because you are not done yet. And God's not finished with you. You are a masterpiece in the making. Allow the Holy Spirit to deal with some stuff, okay? He offers grace, the limitless love of God. He offers forgiveness, and he offers strength. If the Holy Spirit is at work in you, he can accomplish anything. Anything. Right? The Spirit of the living God can do anything. And he's inside of you if you are a believer in Jesus. Which means you can be a great dad because he's a great God. And he empowers you. So Paul teaches us that our God knows us, but he also teaches us that our God is at work in us. But that's not all. All right? We've gotten through God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. We've seen what the Spirit does, the second person of the Trinity. And now we're going to talk about Jesus a little bit. Look at verse 2 again. 
elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that. Okay? But we're going to look at, and for the sprinkling of his blood. Okay? A scary, kind of weird statement. I always found it weird that, you know, in churches on Easter, you sing a lot of songs about blood. And I'm just thinking about all the visitors who come in to church on Easter and what they are probably thinking of when they hear us singing about blood, okay? So it might be weird as we read this, but listen, when it talks about the sprinkling with his blood, that's the word, the atonement. And the atonement is the work of Jesus on the cross where he died in our place and his sacrifice, which was perfect, washes away every sin that you have committed or will commit. Or are committing if you believe in Jesus and repent from your sin. Alright? That's the atonement. In this language that we find here with the sprinkling of blood, it's Old, Old Testament covenant language. Okay? Uh, do we have Exodus chapter 24? Maybe we can put those on the screens. Otherwise, you can, you can kind of write that down in your notes or kind of go there in your Bible. But in Exodus chapter 24, in verse 3 through, through 8, we're, we're going to see uh, where Moses mentions this very same thing. Do we have it? Or do I need to read it? We got it? Cool. That saves me the time. All right? And it says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. This is when he was up on the mountain hearing the Ten Commandments and these things after he led the people out of slavery. Okay? And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right? Famous last words for the people of Israel. But, still, this is what they say. Go to the next verse. Verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood from those slain animals, and he put it in basins, and he took the rest of the half of the blood, and he threw it against the altar. Okay? Now watch what happens next. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it to all the people who could hear him, and they said again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And then check this out. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all of these words. Ooh! It's, it's kind of gross. And it would definitely be rated R, okay? But listen, listen. Here is what's happening. Back in ancient Bible times, there would be nations raging, warring with power, and there would be little tiny little cities and little tiny groups of people that were defenseless. And so what you would see happen are these large nations would cut a covenant with these little nations. If these little nations on their half of the covenant, they would provide, like send food or tax or whatever to the larger nation, and then in exchange, the larger nation would defend them in times of war. And to seal the covenant, they would kill an animal and say, if I fail to live up to this covenant, let what was done to the animal be done to me. All right? And that's why they shed blood when they cut a covenant. And so what we're finding here in First Peter is the same language. Only here's the difference. Jesus took the whole covenant on himself. And he already bled and died for each one of us. Because we could not be good enough. 
We could not get to God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Behold, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one one seeks God. God has to move first. And so Jesus came to the earth and he died for our sins. And that blood is spiritually, symbolically, metaphorically sprinkled on you when you believe in him. It puts you under the covenant. And now, nothing you do, nothing you say, and no one else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. All right? That's the sprinkling of his blood. And so that's the third thing that we learn is that our God saves us. Let's try it again. Turn to your neighbor. Our God saves you. If you will but believe in him, repent of your sins. Listen. Our God saves you. So true theology is knowing and loving God. God knows us. God works in us. God saves us. But check it out. Here is now where it leads us. Back up just a few words. For obedience to Jesus Christ. The elect exiles. For obedience to Jesus Christ. We must obey our God. That's why there is a word, obedience, in that verse. It's our response to who God is and what he's done. Don't miss that. True theology is knowing God, but it's also loving God because of who he is, because he deserves it, because of everything he's ever done for you, which is more than you could possibly imagine. Our God knows us, works in us, saves us, and we must obey Him. See, our God has a purpose in bringing us to Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 15, it says this, Jesus spoke to the disciples and Peter, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Peter was right there sitting on the other side of that conversation when Jesus said that. And here he is, in just the first two verses of his first letter to the believers. He says, listen, you are an elect exile for obedience to Jesus Christ. We must obey God. This was the purpose. But here is the point. We should want to do this. This shouldn't be by compulsion. This shouldn't be because you have to. This should be because you desire to. See, this obedience just means to bow the knee in service of God. It's like in the movie Star Wars, you know? It's not like you're a robot or a droid. You're not C-3PO having to do everything said except for shut up because he never listens to that one. But listen, it's more like a loving Chewbacca, okay? All of you are old enough to have seen Star Wars. If not, Father's Day, make it happen, right? Okay, so... The story of Chewbacca and Han Solo, we won't give spoiler alerts, don't worry. Okay. The story of, uh, of Chewbacca and Han Solo is that Chewbacca was a Wookiee and he was enslaved for life by the Empire. And Han Solo rescues him. Probably not intending to do so, but it happens. And listen, after he rescued Chewbacca from slavery, Chewbacca swore a life debt to Han. Meaning, he would follow him the rest of his life he would protect him. He would do what he asks. That's why Han looks at him and totally treats him like trash, you know, kicks him into the garbage compactor, right? But Chewbacca lovingly obeys because of this life debt. It was his choice to swear that oath. 
And so when we look at this idea of obedience to Jesus, it's not under compulsion. You're not a robot. It's your desire. It should be your love response to God and what he's done. So here's the question. You ready? What is God calling you to do today that you need to obey him to do? What's God calling you to do today? Our God knows us. Our God, he he works in us. And our God, he he loves us and saves us. And our, our loving response should be to obey and to serve him. And so what's God calling you to do? Do you want to know God better? Maybe you should read about Jesus, because Jesus is God. I mentioned earlier that you could check out the Gospel of Mark, but my favorite Gospel is the Gospel of John. So if you want to know God better, I suggest you learn about Jesus a little more. And so why don't you commit maybe this next week, weeks maybe, to read the book of John, to find out who, what is God like because of who Jesus is, right? Maybe, maybe you need to do that. Maybe you want to love God better. And so in this moment, I'm going to ask uh, Jeff and Hannah to kind of come back up. We're going to have an opportunity to, to praise God for who he is, to respond to all of the things he's done in our life with praise and worship. All right? And so if your desire in your heart is to love God better, then, hey, I just suggest use this time and, and thank God for the things he's done. Let him, let him know how much you love him. Because, listen, church family, he has already done everything imaginable to tell you that he loves you. That's why he created you. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you. That's why he rose Jesus from the grave after three days for you. To provide a place for you to be able to have a relationship with him. So let's go ahead and take this moment. I'm going to pray for us. And then I want to invite all of you to stand. And in that moment, I want to, I want to ask you to do some business with God. Thank him. Ask for forgiveness maybe. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you perhaps. But remember, our God loves you.